welcome into the Potato Cast, America's finest healthcare podcast named after a cat. My name is Mike Hess. I am a respiratory therapist by training, but what I'm trying to do with this program is to break down complex issues throughout the healthcare system so that we can all work together to make them better. Uh, if you support what we're doing here, please feel free to check out my other media on uh, YouTube and Facebook under the brand COPD Navigator. If you like these offerings, check out some of the other things we're doing at patreon.com slash bestnest for more information. Finally, if you have any suggestions at all for the program, please feel free to let me know at potatocast at copdnavigator.net. Looking forward to hearing from you. Now, on with the show. All right, folks. So as I record this uh, here in Michigan, we are starting to reopen things up. Uh, our bars and restaurants have been open for a couple of weeks. We're starting to see a little bit of an upswing, um, and we're still in the midst of this pandemic. I know everybody is really looking for uh, what are we going to do to get back to normal? How do we get back to normal, particularly in healthcare? And my question is, why do we want to go back to normal? This coronavirus crisis has revealed a lot of the structural problems that really underpin a lot of our healthcare system. It's been really popular to talk about uh, the current disparities and the disparities in care in COVID cases and things like that, but those things exist all the time. We have a lot of really complex issues. That, I mean, that's why we do the potato cast, right? We have a lot of complex issues that are now coming to light. COVID has not created a lot of these things. They've simply revealed them. So again, I ask, why do we want to go back to normal? What is the future of care going to look like? Because now we have a chance to actually make things better. The pressure is on right now to make things better and to do things a little bit more efficiently. We know that in many cases, simplicity, accessibility, and the availability of follow-up affect people's adherence to their medication plans or any therapy plan, really. It's, uh, it's not that it's not specific to medications, it's any therapy. It's things like pulmonary rehabilitation. It's things like physical therapy. It's all of these things. So now we have a chance to remake the system to make that a little bit easier uh, for everybody. One of the more compelling things I saw right at the beginning of the pandemic was, oh, everybody's stuck at home. Uh, welcome to the world of having a chronic condition that, that limits your mobility. And that's where a lot of people are. And that's why sometimes it's a little bit frustrating to see a lot of the, the peripheral issues, uh, to me at least, in my privilege of not being in, impaired in, in any particular way, uh, the privilege of folks who simply expect the system to conform to them, or it's really easy to conform the system and broaden the system to make it easier for others. I'll give you an example. In, in, the, in the case of the, the world that I live with COPD, not having COPD, but caring for people with COPD. We are constantly encouraging people to go out, uh, go to pulmonary rehab, for example, which is basically like going to a gym where you're monitored and you have oxygen equipment and emergency equipment and all these things. It's difficult for folks to get to those places sometimes, particularly those that need it the most, where um, you know, you're already short of breath, you're toting around oxygen tanks or oxygen concentrators. The logistics of going to the store, the logistics of going to pulmonary rehab, going to your provider's office, voting, all of these things are wildly more complex when you have to have equipment or an entourage with you. 
And now on top of that, we have a lot of fear, and that's appropriate. Again, I said we were reopening a little bit, and it's just right on cue, as with many other places, the reopening has indicated that, oh, we must be out of the woods, we're done, everything is great, uh, we don't have to worry anymore. And so a lot of folks are not doing their social distancing anymore, a lot of folks are not wearing masks, and those people out there with impaired immune systems, as, in, as is the case with COPD and pretty much any chronic condition, it's going to affect your immune system one way or another, now have fear on top of that. So again, I ask, why are we putting these folks at risk for that? Why aren't we going to make working from home a new normal in wherever it's possible, of course? Keeping people with COPD and other chronic conditions in the workforce longer. Again, if you don't have or deal with COPD, it's sometimes difficult to explain exactly how breathless people get. But imagine drinking through, or excuse me, imagine breathing through a straw all day, every day. That is what COPD is like. I have had the barest taste of that simply by wearing a homemade cotton mask. Um, I was out for a walk the other day and I wore my mask because it was in a place that had a lot of people. And after a while, I could really feel it's not the carbon dioxide buildup that everybody wants to fear monger. It's not reductions or any of that stuff, but it's the simple resistance, the expiratory resistance of having something over my face, over my mouth, made it a lot more complicated to breathe took a little bit more effort. And so imagine many times that all the time, even at rest when you're not doing anything. That's what having COPD is like. Now, again, try to imagine going through the entire workday like that. I know some folks who do strenuous labor, and that's good. Uh, they're staying active, but it is very difficult um, to do that with COPD. So... You know, labor maybe not a, a great example, but why can't we find things for folks to do that keeps them safe, that respects their impairment? Now, I'm not using the word disability because a lot of these folks shouldn't really be disabled because we as a, as a society should be able to find something for them to do. They might not be able to do every job, but we should be able to find something so that they can be productive and they can be fulfilled in what they want. And maybe that's not even labor. Maybe that's artistic endeavor endeavors. We don't really celebrate a lot of that stuff either. So why don't we look for that? Why don't we, why don't we start rebuilding this stuff from scratch? Why don't we look at how we're providing care? You know, I, my wife is a nurse practitioner. Uh, you can get to know her if you follow us at the best nest on, on Facebook or on Patreon. She has been doing uh, exclusively virtual visits phone or, or phone visits um, since the beginning of this. And frankly, a lot of people love it. You know, it, it makes the office what we call the, the catchment area larger because if you have people that come in from an hour, hour and a half away, um, it's a lot easier for them to pull up the webcam or call on the phone, things like that. Um, and there's not a lot of reduction in care. Uh, I was reading an interview the other day where uh, this was, uh, I believe it was on MedPage today, a physician said, you know, 80, 90% of what I need, I can get by talking, I can get by discussion, by asking questions, by 
basic evaluation. I don't necessarily always need somebody to come into the office. Now, sometimes you do. Sometimes you need to listen to the lung sounds. You need to uh, see about a heart murmur. You need to do an EKG. You need to do spirometry. You need to do these tests in person. I get that. And I'm not saying we should eliminate those. I'm simply saying that maybe we can modify a lot of this stuff so that we actually make things convenient. So that we can actually make a lot of these things more accessible to more people. We don't have people taking time off from work to drive an hour, like I said. We can offer things at different times of day. I remember, uh, now this one might be a stretch, but I remember when I worked back uh, in the ER, we contracted out with a uh, radiology interpretation service. I was told it was in Australia. I don't know. Looking back, I don't know if they were pulling my chain or not, but it would make sense because Australia is somewhere around 10 hours different from us. I can't remember off the top of my head. I actually talked to a gentleman in Australia somewhat regularly, but they are, it's, they are almost completely offset from us. Why can't we figure out a way to license these physicians, these providers, whoever they are, um, and get that done? Or why can't we simply license night shift people to and, and expand out office hours? Maybe not even at midnight. Maybe you don't necessarily need a doctor's appointment at 2 a.m., but why can't we expand office hours a little bit more practically when people want that? Uh, again, I'll use my wife as an example. She's been doing some office hours a couple of days a week later in the evening, you know, up until about 7 o'clock with some trade-offs in the rest of the time. But if you have an office with a couple of people, why can't you have people taking turns, giving up one night a week to expand some of that so that it's, more, again, more accessible for people? That makes sense. We set up so many barriers to healthcare. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll look at my example. I, I can see where tremendous amount of people might benefit from that because otherwise they're reliant on public transit, which again was shut down during the pandemic and has costs involved and is on a particular schedule. And so if an appointment runs long, you might be stuck in a place for an extra half hour. Why? Why can we not, when I do tobacco cessation or something like that, counseling, chatting, motivational interviewing, all these things, why can't I do that with somebody over the internet? Now, of course, we run into some other problems with that as well. You know, we have a lot of people who may not have high-quality Internet access, uh, regular Internet access. And so we, we want to encourage the virtual visit, but telephone can also serve in a pinch. And frankly, why doesn't everybody have Internet? Why isn't it? Uh, these days, I mean, come on. We historically have looked at it as a luxury, but how many things do you see that are accessible only by the internet or easier by the internet? I can renew my license plates. I can do my shopping. I can do so many things over the internet. Why isn't that a utility? Shouldn't it be? It really is virtually essential these days to, to have an email address for contact and things like that. Your email address is basically the new phone number in many cases. Why isn't it a utility? Why don't we? But I, that's a whole other issue. But in a way, it is also a fundamental inequity in healthcare. 
because again, we have a lot of folks who are able to access these virtual visits and to keep themselves safe and to make things work on their schedule, but we have a lot of people that don't, that can't, because they have these issues with internet access and what have you. So how do we start fixing that? I know in Kalamazoo, um, our Kalamazoo Public Schools have opted to pay for uh, internet connections for a lot of our students, uh, this year at least, during the pandemic, because there are going to be probably more, they're still trying to figure out how to go back to school safely in the fall. We have our, our major universities are looking at increasing their mix of virtual classes, in some cases going exclusively virtual. For some classes for some of those larger classes again to keep people safe seems like if we can do that in education and we can do that in offices i know the cdc has issued a lot of guidance for keeping offices six feet apart and or keeping office workers six feet apart and a lot of places are doing that a lot of places are still encouraging uh, working at home whenever possible let's bring that to healthcare. let's care at home too now to be clear i'm not saying everybody should bury themselves in a cave and never come out or anything like that. Human contact is absolutely essential. And life is always a trade-off of risks and measuring relative risk versus relative benefit. There are always those issues going on. But again, it's minimizing the risk. It's maximizing accessibility with minimum risk. Why don't we also look at how we structure some of our licensing the example i usually use and i've talked about before with with uh, prior authorizations and things like that is it time again to look at who can for example prescribe some medication as a respiratory therapist i am often the one that is teaching my physician partners what medications are how they work things like that and the pharmacists as well we have pharmacists on site who because this is strictly my wheelhouse i am able to take a very limited set of medications and say this is this is my lane this is my area but i can only recommend those i have to the way the system is basically worked out right now i have to make my recommendation i have to of course check with the formulary to make sure that somebody else who doesn't really know what they're talking about has approved this medication and then take it to a physician partner or send it electronically and hope they see it eventually in their inbox, either a paper or, or electronic, and get it signed. Now, in my case, I work with a lot of resident physicians who have different rotations, and sometimes they might ch not check their inbox for a little while, and sometimes systems break down. Why can't I just be the one to put those orders in? under my own responsibility. I'm not looking to turf it off to anybody else. I, you know, in the rare case you have an adverse effect to an inhaled medication, I'm willing to take the responsibility. Why can't we? There is a lot of concern about a lot of other, I know there's always this big debate about physicians versus non-physician providers, you know, especially our nurse practitioner and physician assistant friends. You know, maybe, well, they don't have enough clinical hours and they don't do this and they don't do that. And that is certainly true for a, a lot of really advanced stuff. And again, my wife as a nurse practitioner is the first one to, to admit that there's a lot of stuff that she knows what her limits are and she's uncomfortable with and she will send to a physician. 
similarly, there's a lot that I would send to a primary care physician or a pulmonologist before I even tried to do it. But there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there too, and it doesn't make sense that we're not maximizing efficiency. This is our chance to do that. This is our chance to break down some of those barriers and to break down some of these limitations and to actually, again, make the system work for everybody. It's going to end up saving money in the long run because, again, as I mentioned right at the top of this, simplicity and accessibility affect your adherence to a chronic therapy plan. And if you're adhering to your chronic therapy plan, you are less likely to have flares and exacerbations and, and all that sort of stuff that requires more expensive care in an urgent care or an emergency department or in the hospital. So this is our prime time to do that. Oddly enough, there doesn't really seem to be a lot of appetite in the public to change the way the system works. You know, whether we're talking about Medicare for All or whatever system we're talking about, uh, there have been a couple of polls during the pandemic that uh, kind of highlight this, that, well, this is our chance to, you know, make some changes. And there's not really a lot of support for it, which kind of baffles me a little bit. I can't really figure out why. The only thing I can figure out is the safe harbor principle, or what could be called the safe harbor principle. It's a storm right now. There is so much uncertainty, there's so much disruption, there's so much confusion. People are simply looking for the familiar in order to take shelter. And so they don't want to add to that, so they don't want to have any of these massive changes or anything like that. It's really the only thing I can, can figure, because this is really our, our best shot in a long time, and potentially for a long time, really make some worthwhile, sustainable changes in care. So I would wholeheartedly encourage revisiting this whole safe harbor deal because we need to look at how we can be doing things better. I talked a little bit about telehealth, and I really think that that is going to be a wave of the future. And I'm heartened by the fact that Congress is starting to take that seriously as well. Getting back into the policy mode a little bit, um, many politicians, and I believe even the head of, of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have said, this kind of forced our hand, and we're seeing that it does work. Telehealth had slow adoption because a lot of the reimbursement issues were complicated and uh, for example, you had to, everything was kind of based on where the patient was. I believe it's called the originating site. And a lot of times they actually had to be in a clinic, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. The only way you could get telehealth paid for were certain circumstances where you had a provider in clinic A and a patient in clinic B, and they were talking to each other. So it was still a quote-unquote healthcare setting. That has slowly improved, and then during the pandemic, it improved a lot. And we're seeing, again, it is really easy to have a peek into where a patient is. Oftentimes, it's at home. And now, I'll tell you, as, as a clinician, that can give me some valuable insights. If I'm doing a video visit with somebody at home, even in the respiratory mode, I don't have, for example, I, may, I can't do a pulse ox, I can't listen to lungs, um, can't do spirometry. 
But what I can do is watch how someone is breathing, see how often they're coughing, see what their breathing pattern is, see how long they can talk without um, stopping for breath, conversational dyspnea, we call it. I can ask about all their symptoms. I can ask about the things that are keeping them up at night, how often they wake up at night, how often they're using their rescue inhaler, their short-acting inhaler, excuse me. I can ask all these things, and I can make some observations. I can also take a look at their environment. Yeah, it's been kind of an ongoing joke with all these uh, Zoom conferences and WebEx and all these other these conferences, these webinars and web meetings that we have that cats tend to pop in. We have a couple of cats in the house ourselves, and they've made appearances on various webcasts and things like that. Maybe that can be causing an allergy. Dogs, birds. I was reminded yesterday in a, on a web conference that people with COPD really shouldn't have birds because of the guano, or whatever you call it, birds. Is it bird guano? I'm not sure. No, it's bats. Should, definitely shouldn't have bats. But in any event, I can I can see, you know, if I'm seeing somebody over the course of a couple of months and I see that the environment they're in is starting to deteriorate, maybe I can start being a little bit concerned that they're not taking care of themselves. There's a lot that you can learn simply by watching somebody even over the Internet. Now, again, there are limitations if people aren't showing you their, their area or they have a narrow field of view or, or what have you. You can't see some of those environmental factors. But you can see them. And you can, when you get good at some of these things, you can make virtual eye contact. You can do these things. You can continue to develop that level of trust, arguably more so because if somebody is safe at home and they're not uncomfortable, then it's a little bit easier to build that trust. That was one of the first things that uh, uh, my folks with COPD taught me when I was putting my clinic together, is make it a comfortable space. So in addition to that, now we may have some issues where a provider is in a different state. So now we have to start looking at some of those licensure laws. And my respiratory therapy friends are probably going to laugh and point at me when I say this because I have been for a long time kind of indifferent on the idea of a uh, reciprocity agreement. You know, nurses have the, the nursing compact. A lot of physician states have physician compacts. Or if you have a license in one state, it works in all the other agreement states. There's been a big push to get that for respiratory therapy, and I simply haven't seen a use case for that until now. The percentage of respiratory therapists who travel, while not directly measured, seems to be, by all accounts, pretty low. But now we have telehealth. And so if I can take care of somebody in, again, I live in Michigan, if I can take care of somebody in Illinois or in Kentucky or in Florida, we have a lot of folks in Michigan, the snowbirds, of course, travel between Michigan and Florida for part of the year. Why should they have a whole different set, a whole different care team down in Florida that may not know them as well? Or, you know, if they're new snowbirds, you know, they, they have to establish with, with new groups. Why not literally take your provider with you? Doesn't that make sense? My wife just said goodbye to one of her, her favorite patients yesterday because they're moving down to, to Arkansas. Can't provide care anymore. This is somebody my wife's been caring for for three years. Can't do it anymore. Why? 
distance to cross the state line. Does that make sense? Shouldn't we change that? How do we change that? How do we overcome this safe harbor inertia and work together to make the future what we want it to be? Well, again, this is where we need to work together. This is where we all need to be sharing our voice. This is where we all need to be connecting on our various social media platforms. I'm not going to go on about mine right now, but that's certainly a good place to start. A little biased, of course, but still. We need to be banding together and pushing a lot of these things. That's why it's so critical to understand why things are the way they are and how we can make them better. And that's what I hope to be teaching with things like Potato Cast. This is a fantastic opportunity for a lot of folks. In addition to that, we can expand a lot of these things outside of healthcare. You know, this whole idea of voting is big right now, and I'm not going to get into the politics of that. But what I will say is the same logic that applies to all of these healthcare accessibility things also applies to voting by mail. I actually had somebody who posted a meme about how um, if you can stand something, you can stand to vote or something like that. You can stand in line to vote. And I suppose from an objectivist stance, that's probably true. But there are a lot of people who have difficulty standing. There are a lot of people who, again, have difficulty going and waiting in line. What if you have COPD and you are waiting in line and one of these seemingly increasingly long lines in, in many states for whatever reason, and you're about to run out of oxygen? You're going to go home. You're going to give up your vote, right? Most people, you probably should. I mean, it's literally, you know, could be risking your life if you're standing in line voting without oxygen if you need it. You should probably go home. And so why are we taking votes away from those people? Why is it that we're requiring them to report out that they have a condition? Why can't we just do vote by mail? I mean, we talk about voter fraud and things like that, but in Kalamazoo, I think we have 20 districts. They all have different ballots. It's pretty easy to match up an address and figure out if the ballot is false or not because we have different candidates for different positions and the, the city commission, different, you know, um, uh, different zones. You know, each county is different. Each each political division, city, town, township, village, county, state, they're all different. Probability of fraud is quite low on, on any kind of scale, more than one or two votes. Now, again, one or two votes may make a difference, but there are other safeguards for that too. My point is, regardless of your political affiliation, voting by mail is safe, and voting by mail brings a lot of access to a lot of people. And frankly, we need that because we need to vote for people who are willing to have an eye toward correcting a lot of these issues. And, you know, again, I don't want to make it this whole, uh, you know, establishment versus outsider thing or even with parties or anything like that. But we need to be holding people accountable, whether it is our 
elected officials, whether it is the appointees that are appointed by our uh, elected officials, we need to be holding a lot of these folks accountable and making sure that they are the ones that are pushing for this improved access because this is how we improve the system. Access to healthcare, access to voting, access to utilities like the internet, access to healthy foods, good nutrition, places to have activities safely, whether it's a, a gym or a pulmonary rehab that's safe or walking outside with uh, distancing, six foot distance, staying social from a distance, as I like to say. Access to all this stuff is what's going, when we talk about improving the healthcare system, we have to look at both ends. It can't just be this stovepipe of what we tradition of, of the office and hospital. It can't be just that. It has to be the whole person. It has to be what we do, what we eat, how we manage stress. We talked on our, on our Best Nest show, Fight to Flight, this week. We talked about self-care, and I told a story about how in one of the most stressful times of my life, uh, I, I was being a single parent. I was recently divorced and trying to make dinner. Basically, all we had was a, a can of SpaghettiOs in the house. Uh, didn't have a can opener. Couldn't find my can opener. I was tired. I was working third shift. I was uh, really overweight, not sleeping well, not on CPAP or anything like that. Difficult to sleep for more than you know, a single parent to, to three kids, the oldest of which was in fifth grade, I think, about that, maybe sixth grade. I was stressed. I was tired. So I didn't have a can opener, but I did have a reciprocating saw. So I tried to open a can of SpaghettiOs with a reciprocating saw. Unfortunately, I did not lose any digits or anything like that, but it made an enormous mess and probably spilled half the can at least. Finally got it open. We're able to eat some. But when you are not taking care of yourself, you're making bad decisions, inevitably. That's just how we're wired. You know, we make lower quality decisions, the more stressed and fatigued we are. And the more difficult we make it to deal with that stress and deal with that fatigue, the more likely we are to make bad decisions. And the worse access we have to ongoing care, the more likely it is we're going to have difficulty dealing with that stress and fatigue, especially at a time like this. But even outside this, again, the coronavirus is not the cause of a lot of this stuff. It's the magnifying glass that has revealed it. So I'm hopeful that many of us can kind of band together, so to speak, and work together to improve the system and make it better for everybody. Because that is truly how we're going to improve a lot of things in and outside the system. So that's my take on the future of care. Hopefully, it will positively impact your take on the future of care. Uh, but let me know. Please let me know um, wherever you can provide comments. You can send comments to potatocast at copdnavigator.net. Uh, again, you can check us out on Patreon and become a patron at patreon.com slash bestnest and see some of our other programming with uh, uh, COPD Navigator and Fight the Flight. Um, you can find me at various places on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, usually with uh, some variation of COPD Navigator or the Best Nest. 
Uh, and I would love to hear your thoughts. So let me know what you think. And uh, if I get some great comments, we will throw them out in a future episode of the Potato Cast. So uh, for right now, my name is Mike Hess. I really appreciate you listening. And we'll see you next week.